Welcome to the E Street Cafe podcast, the cool, friendly place for great music chat. Hi, everybody. This is Jeff. Um, we're in the cafe again. It's a very, very warm Sunday afternoon, isn't it, Dan? Uh, what's happened to the weather? Well, we're having a, a last blast of summer, it looks like, um, you know, maybe an Indian summer. So this works for me. Let's go for it. It's, it's certainly very warm in here, but I'm not complaining at all because we've got iced water. Um, Rosalita is hanging around because she wants to get away early. So she's going to be asking our guest uh, straight away for orders. And it's going to be served in super quick time, I'm sure, because she wants to get out, hit the beach and get some sun, I think. So uh, we'll, we'll get on to that in just a second. But um, the other news we've got to share, of course, is last time we spoke, um, we were doing the interviews, weren't we, for the new staff of the cafe? Oh, yes. And Yeah. And we've, we've reached a decision. Uh, Rosalita and I uh, were unanimous between the two of us. <laughs> so um, Wheatney Willie's coming back. He, he took a, a career break, but he's coming back and he's going to be on, on the waitering team. And uh, we've got somebody called Wendy joining us in the kitchen. Ah. And uh, today she did a trial, uh, trial run. Because it's been so hot, we had the fans on. But I couldn't work out whether her dress was sway- swaying or waving. I, I really couldn't tell. <laughs> but the fans were on full pelt. So. <laughs> but uh, we will welcome Wendy and Wheatney Willie, certainly Wheatney Willie, back as well. And you'll be hearing from them in no doubt in, in some future episodes. So, um, Dan, um, I think I should introduce the, the guest we have on today, our special guest. It's time. Yeah, it's time. Let's do it. Okay, so we have Lauren Onke with us, and she is the director of the Corkin School of the Arts and Design, and she's a professor of music at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Uh, Lauren has extensive experience in presenting popular music history in person and across digital platforms. Prior to this, she has served as a VP at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, responsible for developing and managing the museum's award-winning education and community programmes. Now, quite recently, what she's done is she's written an introduction to Kick Out the Jams, a new book celebrating the work of lifetime Springsteen biographer and broadcaster Dave Marsh. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. What a kind introduction. Um, As I was sharing with you both before, I've loved listening to the pod. You know, I have all kinds of credentials, but the, the most important one is I'm a Bruce fan since I was a kid. So um, it's really been lovely to hear the work and the fun that you all are providing us fans out there. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Those, those words mean a lot to us and uh, we're glad you like it. And uh, I must admit, I had to cut the intro down. You know, you talk there about uh, everything you've done, but I, I missed things out. For example, you were involved with NPR Music and what I think is a fantastic concert, the Tiny Desk uh, concerts. Oh, yes. Big fan. Yeah, those were great. Um, So I was the director of NPR Music, and that included um, music podcasts and music video series, as well as online journalism. And during my time there, I worked really hard to try to get Bruce to play the tiny desk, but it just just didn't work out. The the window was Western Stars. That had come out when I was there. And it just you know, unless he was going to commit to bringing a full string section into the office, um, that didn't work out. But maybe someday he'll show up at the desk. I was going to say it kind of uh, busts the myth then, and a tiny desk concept. You just imagine one guy and a, and a guitar, don't you? But uh, to have a full string section just wouldn't kind of uh, fit, would oh, it, with yeah. the brand? You need we a bigger desk? Small, we had small choirs. We had 15-piece bands. And it was still, you know, in a regular mm. office. So... It's a it's a malleable format. But, I, I, I read somewhere the other day that you've gone over now uh, that particular concept, Tiny Desk Concepts, has gone over two billion views now, hasn't it, on YouTube? Yeah, it's remarkable. Um, you know, it was such a it's a, it's a simple concept in a way. Three songs, you mm-hmm. get kind of a bite sized sampler of an artist whom you may love or never heard of, and it really matched YouTube very well too, right? Because it would just feed you another another show so uh yeah i was honored to be a part of that and i guess that covid and lockdown probably helped the promotion mm-hmm. of that concept did it not sure. you know it's really interesting uh that you asked that jeff we were you know when covid hit at npr we were of course focused on how can we produce the news and all of our content and shows remotely 
And we pretty much could make it all work, but we were quite scared about Tiny Desk because the secret sauce of Tiny Desk is that it's in that it's in a physical place, you know, yeah, yeah. that we couldn't replicate. Um, and the guy who invented Tiny Desk, Bob Boylan, came up with an idea very soon. I mean, it was still March. And he said, why don't we start asking artists to film themselves at home, you know, thinking like this won't last long. And what is it, what is it like to be home? And then, of course, you know, they stayed remote for a long time at NPR and the home concerts, the audience really warmed them, um, which was, which was great, but we were concerned that maybe we'd lose the very thing that, that people loved so much. And I'm pretty sure I saw, I think it was Kathleen Edwards actually, Dan, you'll, you'll know this. I'm pretty sure I saw Kathleen Edwards performing. It might've been at tiny desk where the musicians all had face masks on. That's ringing a bell. Was it Kathleen? Yes. I'm trying to remember. But so, I, think, so. I think it was, but anyway, it, it, mm. I just remember that. So it, it was a weird time, but obviously a good time to actually explore different ways of promoting music in different ways and formats and more accessible ways as well. So, um, yeah, I'm in awe of your, your CV and, and, you know, that's your legacy. You can't argue with it, can you? The work, that work is done and it's on your CV and your resume. So hats off to you. Um, but I've, I've got to start with, um, I was viewing a video of you. I think it's when you went into George Washington and, and you did a Q&A. And the first question was your first record. Mm. And I, love, I loved your answer, not because of the song, but the way you put the passion behind the answer. And I think if I get this right, I'll try and paraphrase. It said, it was born to run. I was 12 years old and it blew my head open. <laughs> it's a true story. I mean, you know, I had had, I had certainly bought plenty of records before then. Um, but I mean, you know, asking for one that really had an impact. Yeah. I, you know, I started to see Bruce in 75 in, in the press. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think probably the first, maybe the first, I mean, I, you know, you don't know now and you make up a narrative when you think back, right? But Newsweek, my parents subscribed to Newsweek. So the Newsweek cover certainly was there. But I remember maybe even before that, that same fall for Born to Run, there was a, a kind of a hatchet job piece in the New York Times uh, by Harry Edwards, I think was his name, called If There Wasn't a Bruce Springsteen, the critics would make would have had to make him up. That rings a bell. And like at the time I was getting really into music and I wanted to read everything I could about music and listen to the radio all the time. And Bruce looked really interesting. It looked really cool, he's sexy, the guitar, all that stuff. But I didn't hear him. Mm. Because, you know, as you guys know, Born to Run wasn't a, like a big AM radio hit. So um, when I bought the 45 that fall, I was really intrigued by him, but hadn't heard him. And I'll just never forget, I had to put headphones on because my dad was asleep and, and just, it was like, <laughs> oh my God, this sound, this yeah. incredible sound. And then, you know, ever since really, but there, I really do remember hearing that record for the first time and just feeling like, I don't know, it was so welcoming in a way. Yeah, it's, it's one of those moments, isn't it, that you almost, it's almost like, where were you when JFK got shot? Where were you when Princess Diana died? Where were you when this happened? Where were you when you first had Born to Run? You know, it, it's it's mm -hmm. one of those things that will stand out, I a think. Defining moment, yeah. Absolutely. Um, Rosalie is very impatient because I said ah, she was looking to get off. Yeah, she wants to go to the beach and she's tapping her fingers here. Yes, we know. <laughs> Um, so without further ado, what would you like to drink first of all? Well, it's a very hot day here as well. And it's mm -hmm. also a holiday weekend. Tomorrow is our Labor Day. Yes. So I am. I would love a nice, crisp Pilsner if okay. it's there at the cafe. Um, and that's one with alcohol in, I presume. Yeah. An alcoholic one. Yeah. Not these non-alcoholic ones. Yeah, these non-alcoholic right, beers aren't very good. <laughs> Right, we can serve that up, no problem. I know there's plenty of them in the fridge. Um, and to eat, would you like something to eat with that? You know, I I, I think I'll pass on the food right now. Just a nice, uh, it's a little hot. And mm -hmm. so maybe okay. just a, a nice crisp beer would be good. Okay, well, well, Rosie's, hang, uh, she's, she's holding it. That way she can get out of here more quickly. Well, I think, she's gonna, I think because you have nothing to eat and you've made her life easy, she's going to bring you two beers. So you're going to have two pills in us. <laughs> well, she put two fingers up at me. I, I, think, I think that's what she meant. 
<laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, so that those beers will be with you literally within a minute or so. And that's appropriate for Labor Day because we have to recognize those who, you know, serve us food and do all the jobs. Of course. Yeah, yeah good. Perfect. Um, right, so let's. I want to move on to your connection with with Dave Marsh because um, I think you described somewhere that Dave was a gateway for a certain generation of Bruce fans. Um, I'm really interested in how you got introduced through to Dave and mm. how did that relationship de- develop? Certainly in the early days. Yeah, um, you know, as I mentioned, I was interested in reading about rock and roll as as much as not as much as listening but i was really interested in in you know what's in rolling stone and nme when i could see it or melody maker i'm 60 so i was born in 63 um and so by the time i got you know to be 11 12 13 i was reading a lot of music press and i first read dave's work not about bruce but just his work in Rolling Stone. He had a column called American Grandstand. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading um, a review of the Who tour um, called I Can't Explain Noted Critic Claims was the headline. And he, um, you know, he'd written, in, he had yet to write his big Who book, but he was a Who fan. And there was a passion in his writing and a, um, an invitation, I thought, that really just stuck out to me. So just as somebody who loved words and writing and writing about music, I was really interested in what he was doing. But interestingly enough, I actually didn't, my local newsstand didn't carry Rolling Stone, it carried Cream. Uh And so I actually didn't read Rolling Stone regularly until just a couple years later, um, and he wasn't writing for Cream. So I didn't read him constantly, but when I could see Rolling Stone, I did. Um, But I didn't actually read him on Bruce until 1978, Mm -hmm. when he wrote an incredible cover story on the Darkness Tour. He was kind of on the tour for the 4th of July um, for the Roxy show on July 7th for a show in Phoenix that ends up being captured, you know, on video and the, the Rosalita video that came out a little bit later. And that profile was so amazing. Like mm-hmm. the way he would describe the power of the band. And um, he had also reviewed Darkness on the Edge of Town uh, for Rolling Stone, which, I mean, I just read it and read it and read it. Like he had a way of describing the music and the context of the music just i guess it taught me things maybe or raised different questions so i loved him as a writer and then he was writing about bruce and that really excited me but he had written about bruce i mean um i think he writes first piece he might have written on bruce was from 73 he he reviews you know bruce and and Bob Marley, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're on the same bill in New York at Max's Kansas City, which yeah. like you can't even imagine. Yeah. Um, and he he writes about that show for uh, a newspaper on Long Island Newsday, and it gets collected in his first anthology, Fortunate Son. Let's have a little clip of Dave talking uh, about the second album. For Dave Marsh, Bruce's second album, The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle, contains some of his best writing. It's definitely got the best songs, and maybe from the point of view of him as a singer, it's got the best performances. I mean, my only quarrel with it is that the the tracks could be a lot hotter, you know, they could actually be. But what it actually happens is he starts, now you've got a record that's starting, you're starting to conceive it in terms of a rock and roll band. Mm-hmm and the singer and the writer you're also getting bruce to the point where he's starting to write more less on themes and more he gets characters involved you get the scenes you get uh and and through those you get to the themes but it's always through character and it's through narrative through storyline and you also get songs that hang together uh, you get that second side, which is Incident on 57th Street and Rosalita and uh, New York City Serenade, which is just, it is a suite. And you know that he knows. He doesn't make any big deal about it, but you know that he knows. Yeah, you point that out in the book, that that, that side uh, is programmed from start to finish so impeccably. It's one story. Yeah. And, and to me, this is where Bruce starts. I mean, I think everybody's got one story to tell. You know, novelists keep writing the same book. Uh singers keep singing the same song in a funny kind of way and i think that's good uh 
And I think Bruce starts to find out what his story is on that record. And the story is sort of the Spanish Johnny uh, and Puerto Rican Jane story from Incident on 57th Street. I mean, to me, boy, that story is just, that's the story that you always wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. It's like West Side Story if they'd done it right. Mm -hmm. So I just followed him as a writer and loved him writing about Bruce. He wrote a great piece for Musician Magazine on the River Tour. Um, and then, of course, he publishes the first Bruce biography, which I'm holding up to you guys, which isn't any yep. help for actual yep. audio listeners, um, in 79, Born to Run, the Bruce Springsteen story. And that was such a good book. I mean, you were a fan, right? So you were eager for yeah. anything, but yep. that it was well-written, you know, it wasn't just a cheap like knockoff that you find on a on a rock star. It was well written and it had a point of view about the state of the music and the history of rock music. And for me, what, one of the things that was most exciting was the list of cover songs mm. in the back of the book that um, Bruce had performed. And there were so many of those songs I had never heard. Right. It twist and shout. Okay, fine. But, you know, mountain of love and, and I sold my heart to the junk man. And, yes. you know, um, and I was as a, as somebody who really wanted to learn about the history of the music, I was like, Oh, this is really exciting. So, and I guess his, his knowledge about the history of the music also kind of stood out to me. So long answer, sorry, Jeff, but that was kind of, you know, here was a writer that I liked and he was giving me all this really interesting information um, about Bruce. And then when I was, um, I kind of thought maybe I would write about music, that I would want to be a music journalist. Um, and I wrote to him when I graduated from college, I think, and kind of said, how do I do this? How do I, you know, how does one break into this or whatever? And um, I got a letter back from him and Sandy Chorone, his agent at the time. Mm, yeah. His book agent. And it was just the nicest, like, keep writing, send it. At that point, he had a newsletter, Rock and Roll Confidential, that came mm -hmm. to be Rock and Rap Confidential. He said, you know, send stuff. We don't pay, but send stuff. It was just encouraging. Um, and then I met him. Uh, I, I got a job when I got out of college at Random House Books, uh, just an absolute mm. level job. And he was, uh, he was Fortunate Son had just come out, uh, his first collection. And he was there also Rock and Roll, Rock and Roll Confidential had like an anthology that came out right around the same time. And his second Bruce book was, was Brewing, Glory Days. And, and so I got to meet him and, you know, he was just encouraging like, I mean, Dave could be a smart ass and, um, <laughs> you know, salty and all those things. But as, as a young person who wanted to know, like, how, how do you do this? He was just really, really encouraging. And we, we kind yeah. of started a lifelong friendship in that way. Well, that's really nice to hear. And I, I know just listening to your story, though, and how your relationship with Dave evolved and developed, um, certainly the help he was giving you at that time as well as a, what, 22-year-old would you have been around about right, that time? Right. Yeah. Um, Dan, at probably around the same time, you were exchanging letters, weren't you, with Dave? Because you had started the fanzine, Point Blank, and you you had probably about half a dozen different exchanges with Dave, didn't you? Exchanging information, he was complimenting on on the fanzine. So did you find he was helpful to you as well when when you were starting Point Blank? Definitely, yes. I mean, it was a big surprise to, to hear from him because I didn't uh, actually make contact myself. It was through uh, a, a good friend of mine who was one of my early readers that sent him um, a, a copy because he'd been in touch with, uh, um, uh, I think, somebody at, uh, at, at Landau's office sort of even back then, which was quite quite special. Mm -hmm. So suddenly out of the blue, I get this letter from, from Dave Marsh and it was like, wow, <laughs> it's sort of you know, celebrity uh, re reader time saying that he, you know, he liked the fanzine. He, especially he was comparing it to Thunder Road and said he liked yeah. the, uh, the, the spirit. And I was very touched by that because um, I thought, goodness, I must be doing, doing something right. So that was a big boost. And he very, um, as, as we're saying, very helpful, very uh, interested, keen and sort of keen to sort of keep in touch. Um, and uh, yeah, the last thing I expected, I just thought, you know, this is this guy's going to be a bit, sort of busy author, and um, and part of the, the inner circle as well. It was uh, yeah, big big thrill to hear from him. 
Yeah, yeah, I bet it was. Hi, fellas. Uh, my name is Raymond, and I'm just letting you know that I've discovered your podcast, and I absolutely love it. I've been listening to it on the night shift, and it's been getting me through. I've been catching up on episodes. Um, growing up in Ireland, Bruce was my first real musical love. And would you know it, as it turns out, I've ended up living in New Jersey, and I'm married to my own Jersey girl. That wasn't the plan, but that's just how life worked out. So I'm really looking forward to more episodes. And I think the other thing as well, um, you just mentioned there, Lauren, was the Born to Run, Born to Run book. Yeah. And I certainly remember, when did that hit the UK down? Was that about 81? Because it, it got updated, didn't it, with the start of the River Tour? There was um, an edition that came out, uh, yes, in, uh, uh, in 81, sort of to Early coincide with, with the European tour, yeah. Well, we've got another good clip here, and this is of Dave talking about taking uh, Pete Townsend to... Uh, the Brighton gig in 1981, and let's listen to what Dave has to say about that particular evening. While in England for the British leg of the tour, Dave Marsh ran into Peter Townsend of The Who and had the pleasure of taking him to see Springsteen live for the first time. Pete walks in, fresh from America, looking sort of like boiled cabbage. Worse, you know, just pale, ghostly. Um... And we kind of said, well, look, we're going down an hour and a half. We're going down to, uh, we're going to drive down to Brighton. Or come to Brighton. So what are you going to do? So I'm going to see Springsteen. So yeah, I'll come, you know, we'll take my car. So we sort of threw him in the car and drove to Brighton. Which, first of all, I mean, what a perfect place, given the history of mod riots and stuff, and the Who's own history, to, uh, to have him see Bruce for the first time. So along about Badlands, he leans over to me and he says, you know, this is really amazing. Really, it's amazing, huh? I'm feeling a little better. He said, yeah, he said, it's not the music exactly. What is it? I just said, well, you know, it's whatever he's singing about in this song. You know, that's what it's about. But it was great, you know. And he said to me later, well, if you told me this was it was this good, I wouldn't have believed it. Which is great because I always feel like I've sort of been telling people that it was so good that nobody would believe me anyway. You know, which is a very common kind of Springsteen fan reaction. It's like, and he immediately got, well, it's better than what everybody's been telling me it is. And he really dug it. He went to a lot of shows and they wound up playing together in Birmingham on the last night or the next to the last night of the tour. He came out. I wasn't there again. Damn. Uh, he came out with one of Stevie's hats on and played uh, Born to Run in uh, Detroit. Med and, and for me, as, as a Bruce fan then, I think it was the first book I'd seen, certainly, that gave me, or certainly whetted my appetite for wanting to find out more, especially about cover versions, especially mm. about bootlegs, live mm -hmm. performances. Yep. And, you know, this this is the time that me and Dan went to see Bruce for the first time on, on the River Tour in the UK in 81. But to then read this book, this fabulous book, listing dates talking about i remember you know i sold my heart to the junkman and finding that on a bootleg from 1974 and thinking wow and all of a sudden you're faced with this trawling back you know it's like okay i love the river i've rediscovered darkness and you just work backwards and backwards and backwards yeah, and um i think the other thing that really sticks out with what you were just saying there about um dave is that all of a sudden when when you tune into a writer that you admire um, all of a sudden, that really uncovers the meaning of the music for me. So mm. you can you you can hear music, but all of a sudden, when you start to understand the piece that's been written, then you start to listen to the music more. Do, do you find that as well? Is that one of the turn ons for you? What you found? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think for Dave's work on Bruce and other people, I think the um, you know the politics of the music mm. in the broadest sense, right? Not not you know who you're going to vote for but um the, the 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 social and cultural significance of the music was something that you know he has always written about and increasingly so yeah. um and that made me ask questions about that right but also the um the history i mean 
you know, and one of the interesting things about this new collection of his work is that you see the way he he himself throughout his career continues to go back and go back and go back and learn, you know, I mean, he grew up on, you know, Motown, right. And, and early rock and roll, but he, you know, learned a lot about the history of folk music and, um, and, you know, gospel music, for example. So those were things, Jeff, that I really felt when I um, read his work that it, then I thought, oh, that's interesting. Now I want to think about those kinds of questions too. So it, um, I mean, I guess it fed my sense that like this music really mattered. It wasn't just something that gave me pleasure on a Saturday night. Now we all want pleasure on a Saturday night and I, you know, that's, I'm there for that too. But, you know, he really writes as if this stuff absolutely matters. And that spoke to me and still, still speaks to me. So it was super fun. So I saw Bruce just a few months for the first time, just a few months before you all in December of 80 on the river mm-hmm. tour. I was, um, I missed the darkness tour. I was only 15 and nobody I knew who could drive a car was a fan. So I didn't get to the darkness tour. Damn it. Um, <laughs> but I saw him in December of, of 1980. So we were, we came in yeah. almost at the same time there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm also intrigued with, just going back to the Born to Run book briefly, yeah. uh, and probably you can wrap this around all of Dave's works, especially on Bruce. How does he manage to remain objective, do you think, in his writing, bearing in mind that he's certainly part of the inner circle? Right. Oh, man, that's a question, and that's certainly a question that's caused him some trouble. I mean, um, if Dave were in this conversation, he would sort of say, objectivity is bullshit, I think, or, or something like that. Yeah, sure. um, uh, and I guess he didn't really. I mean, it's interesting, right? That question really came up in a major way in the second biography, Glory Days, mm-hmm. which came out in 87. Um, and, you know, there was some famous reviews, might be a British review that called it hagiography for the first time. I can't remember now. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, he acknowledges in the opening of that book that Barbara Carr, who's, you know, was part of Bruce's management team, is his wife. Mm. Um, I guess what he didn't do in that book was to actually talk about that along the way in the book, right? So he didn't put himself as a visible person in the, in the inner circle. He just wrote the book. So, mm. I mean, maybe... Um, one of the ways, and I'm just speculating here, that he that he backed off about writing about Bruce very much after Glory Days. I mean, there's another book on tour, um, which mm. came out in like 2010, 2011, um, yeah. that our dear friend uh, Holly Carr Price helped with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in pulling some information together and he certainly reviewed a few things along the way um, but you know maybe that was one of the things but I think some of the um, I think some of the response to that stuff in Glory Days is just silly I mean I think there was a general backlash against Bruce for a period there after the massive success of Born in the USA hmm. I mean I just write like there's a famous Esquire cover Saint Boss that was a real hatchet piece in like 90 89 90 um, but I was recently rereading the section in Glory Days about the Nebraska period after the Warren Zanes book and you had Warren um, hmm. on to talk about that book and you know a lot of what Warren is saying about that period Dave already unearthed. I'm not saying Warren's book is copying that because I think it's a terrific book and I'm glad we have it and we should have many books on Nebraska. But like people talk about glory days, like it whitewashed Bruce or something. And you read that stuff in his, in the period before and after Nebraska, it's harrowing. Like Mm. he's in terrible, like he's clearly in terrible shape. Now, Dave didn't use the language around mental health that we would use now nor did Bruce though, right? Like Bruce wasn't describing himself in the way he would now. So I don't know. Like, I think 
I think the objectivity thing will always comes up with him and Bruce. Yeah, but I, I think talking about the mental health issues of 82, I think there's a reason why it wasn't talked about at the time. A, we're talking 40 years ago when it wasn't kind of on trend or recognised. Right. Uh, and, and secondly, it was too fresh. You know, it was just happening. And, you know, it's only now, if you look at the, the biography, you know, the Born to Run book, uh, the autobiography that Bruce released in yeah. 2017, whatever it was, he, he only then just touched on what was happening, first of all, in 82, but then also in 2012, I think it was, around the Wrecking Ball tour, um, right. and the troubles and challenges he had then. But obviously, as a 60-something-year-old, you feel more equipped to deal with it. It's also coming across in his writing as well, you know, through his music. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, Dave probably put himself between a rock and a hard place a little bit. But sure. I, th I think the world is a better place for his writings, for sure, because certainly for me, it was the first book that opened my eyes beyond the music and say, okay, this was the kind of um, the green light to go back and explore further retrospectively. And, and I loved it for, for that. I loved it for that. But um, uh, the beers took a little bit longer than I thought, but they're here. And you and you have got two beers. I'm pleased that you've got two beers because I thought she'd have been quite rude to me when she put two fingers up. No, it's, it's two beers. <laughs> you've, got a, you've got some ice with it as well, Lauren, as well, just to kind of keep it cool. And... There she goes. She's off. She's off to the beach. Yeah. So just whilst you, uh, you pour your first beer, I'm just going to hand you over to Dan, who's got some, some more points he wants to just run through with you. Yeah. So Lauren, if, if, if we step back and think about um, the various books about Bruce that, that, that Dave wrote, so of course, obviously starting with, with Born to Run and then as we discussed Glory Days, then, and then later on, the one that was just called something like On Tour, 1968 to 2005, something like that, the uh, uh, On the Road, um, uh, which may not be that well known, but we, we yeah. recommend people check that out. And then, of course, um, he compiled the first two biographies, if you like, into two hearts, didn't he? Which I was delighted to see. I only discovered today that you have a name check in, and, uh, um, and, and that, that, that's wonderful. So... Looking at all of those, um, oh, and we mustn't, mustn't forget the making of, of Sun City. That's another oh, right, right, kind of right. Side, side project in there, which again I had to remind myself about that. Which again, it, hard to find probably nowadays, but well worth looking looking out out for. So, um, how, how would you describe the sort of the, the evolution of his contribution over all of those, if you can do that and uh, for us in, in some way? Oh, God, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, I think Born to Run captures that initial enthusiasm and and spirit of, of Bruce Springsteen and the thrill of Bruce Springsteen live. Um, I think the way that that – I think that book opens with um, – the bottom, like transcribing the story from the bottom line in 75 mm -hmm. um, when Bruce meets Clarence during the slow version of East Street Shuffle. <laughs> like, I just think he writes there about, you know, the seventies Bruce with such passion and enthusiasm and really respects, tries to capture what happens live. Um, I think that book is really great for that. And I think it still is great. And while, we know a lot more about the actual facts and narratives of Bruce's life. There's still really interesting things in there about the Castiles and um, Tex Vineyard, you know, the, the guy in the neighborhood that had Bruce's band like play in the house. Like there are characters in that book that are really awesome. Um, I do think Glory Days is fascinating to cover the period we just talked about, really. It's great on the river tour. I think. I think you start to see Dave in that book do something that he did throughout his career, which is begin to really see that Bruce is received differently in Europe, in UK than at home. Yes, and, he mentions that, right. Right, and his, his passion, Dave's love for seeing Bruce outside of the US um, really comes out in that book. And you also see in that book, certainly an attempt to create much more of a political context for thinking about 
rock and roll and Bruce. So thinking about Bruce against kind of Reagan's rise, mm. Thatcher's rise, the conservatism of the eighties, um, that's what he does really well in that book, which may be something that some fans didn't love or maybe don't love about Dave. So, but I think that book is still, and I would really encourage anybody who got excited about the Nebraska period um, by Warren Zane's terrific book to read this book as well, because you can, you, Bruce talking about what he was going through in, I think the interview is probably 86 or 87 that he gives for that book is fascinating because he definitely describes that he was in terrible shape, right? But without, yeah. he's not yet revealing, right? That he begins to see a therapist and, you know, is having these, but he describes what happens, just not in that language. Right. So I think that book is super valuable. On Tour is a lovely book. It's a lighter book. Um, it's It's got... Uh, great photographs and he tries to create a narrative around tours and we should thank holly um for the um both i think the leads on some of the photographs and also the details of the tour because it's us fans who really understand the arc of a tour i don't think dave would have really dug in unless it was a tour he spent a lot of time on the road on maybe like like born in the usa so i think it's not as nerdy as we would be maybe with all the set lists and but um it's really great for the history of bruce bruce live i think this new book of uh, a collection of dave's work um since his first collection in in 1985 fortunate son has three pieces um one from 1984 when Ronald Reagan first uh, tried to appropriate Bruce's fame in the fall of 84. Dave was covering that for Rock and Rap Confidential in his newsletter. The second was a reporting from Bruce's appearance at the beginning of the Seeger Sessions tour at Jazz Fest in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And the third is a very long review of Wrecking Ball with uh, uh, his co-writer Danny Alexander. I say all those three together because as I reread them, I reread them yesterday. It's very much the arc of, of Dave thinking about Bruce's work more politically. Um, and you see, you see that through, you know, kind of across those three pieces. And I think all three of them ask, okay, if you love this music and you respond to this, this message, what are you going to do about it? Like, how do we as a community of fans react? So I think that more political strain of Dave's writing, you you really get in, in the new book. Um, sorry for all these long answers. It's no, fun to talk about. No, it's good. It's great. It's it's what, just what we want to talk about. It's perfect. That's what it's all about. Yes. The E Street Cafe podcast. Friendly chats. Great stories. Interesting guests. Hit the follow button. And remember, this is not a dark ride. So um, I'm thinking about Two Hearts, and that's one mm. I must admit I haven't actually uh, got hold of. But I, I'm, I'm assuming that he kind of brought the first two books up to date with, um, you know, sort of connecting them and maybe doing, is there like an, uh, an introduction, an extra chapter, something like that? Oh, yeah. Um, so the two books are reprinted um, as they were published. So he doesn't update them within that narrative, but there's a long opening chapter um, where he tries to kind of take account of the story, you know, since glory days and also does some reflecting on the critique he got about, you know, being an insider and being too, you know, uncritical of Bruce. Um, so he takes that on a little bit in his way. Mm-hmm. So people want, like, I think that's a really, like, especially if somebody is relatively new to Bruce fandom, I think two hearts is a really great, Mm. compendium of all of that stuff i was just thinking that sounds like an ideal way in to catch up with with uh, with with everything in terms of the main biographical work anyway um and um yeah talking of uh, of uh, our, our dear friend holly and i'm um so so glad that we all we all have that uh, in common yet again <laughs> as, as we so often do on the podcast that makes me think about um, the transition in, in, into broadcasting, and the, mm. I think it must have been the last time I saw Dave. Also, one of one of the last times I saw Holly, um, I was um, at, at uh, Bruce's uh, weekend shows in uh, Kilkenny in Ireland uh. during the two, 2013 for the Wrecking Ball tour, and I was just wandering around, and I just happened to see this um, 
sort of this this table set up, and a couple of folks doing an outside broadcast for radio. You know, clearly with the headphones <laughs> on and everything. And I did a double take because it was firstly uh, my old friend Holly, and then the guy with her was was Dave. And um, this was for East Street Radio on, on, on Sirius. That's got me thinking, how did Dave make the transition from uh, authorship into, into broadcasting? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I don't know how that happened. And he was, you know, he did a long running show called Kick Out the Jams, also the name of this new book um, that ran on Sundays. Um and that took in a wide swath of music and he interviewed tons of artists. I, I mean, I think that show maybe started in the early two thousands, but actually Dan, I don't know when, when mm. he started that. And then he went on, he went on E street radio. Um, I mean, one of the first things I remember him doing on E street radio was a long interview with Bruce on the born to run box set, which came out in Oh five. But yeah, it was a place where he brought his journalism and his his voice, you know, um, to a really different context. I know the editors of of Kick Out the Jams, um, Danny Alexander and Daniel Wolf, and and Daniel's written a beautiful book on the history of Asbury Park, Fourth of July Asbury Park. Oh, right, um, really terrific book. Um, at one point, they were thinking about maybe transcribing some of Dave's work and his interviews. Um, from Sirius, but there was so much material to work through. I mean, that's the thing to note. Talk about prolific. <laughs> like, you know, Kick Out the Jams collects pieces that came out in Rock and Rap Confidential, in a political magazine called Counterpunch, um, in a lot of different publications. Um, he used to write a fair amount for the Austin, Texas uh, newspaper. Um, there's a couple of profiles from, from there. Um, but at the same time, he was still churning out books um, and then doing this radio show. So I think there was a there, you know, as a writer, as a thinker about music, there was a work ethic and a commitment there, you know, that's that's pretty astonishing when you kind of stack it all up. Lauren, I'm just looking now at the um, you very kindly sent through a, a list of the contents and, and I see this as a collection of essays, I guess, isn't it? Uh, yeah. From 84 to 2017. But yeah, you're right. That there's um, some amazing uh, articles here. Counterpunch seems to uh, certainly feature a lot. But here's one that just caught my eye now from 19, March 1999, entitled They Can't Kill Rock and Roll, But They're Trying To. And that was, <laughs> and that was published in Playboy, would you believe? Right, right. Huh? Um Playboy used to have, I mean, I don't know what it does now, but it certainly used to have a lot of good music coverage. Remember yeah. the big John Lennon interview in, in 1980? Um, yeah. yeah, that 1999 piece. Um, I mean, one of the things that this collection does is really gets into also the politics, not just of the music, but of the music business. Mm -hmm. um, Dave's written a lot about censorship efforts, um, you know, particularly in the – 80s and 90s against rap, against heavy metal. Um, you know, that was something he fought against um, just vociferously. And, you know, we're back at it again. Um, but uh, he was writing in that piece about, um, you know, something ridiculous that radio programmers and the industry was doing. And you get that history in this new book. I think if you, if you kind of read them chronologically, you'll see the kind of um, consolidation of the music industry. Um, you know, now we're in streaming where artists are getting nothing. And he was very attentive, I think, throughout these pieces to really focus on, you know, what is the impact on the artists um, and on us as listeners in terms of what music can kind of get out. But yeah, the, the venues, like there's a long piece in here about the Beatles anthology um, documentary from 95 that came out in TV Guide, which was a little weekly. Oh, yeah. the, long, the Long and Winding Road. Yeah, and it's, yeah. And it's, a, yeah. it's yep. a great piece on the yeah. Beatles and on the anthology, but it was in this like very functional magazine called you know, TV guide, which is what you bought to know what was on TV. Um, so, so Dave's work, I think also reflects, and, you know, in some ways this has passed that, 
you could make a living as a music journalist. There was, there were outlets for writing about music, you know, um, I don't know if you all did this, but certainly when Bruce was on tour, like for the river or born in the USA, one of the ways that I could figure out what was going on, you could go to your local library and open up the newspaper from St. Louis or Los Angeles and see a review um, <laughs> that, that, you know, that kind of coverage of music and the arts was very prevalent. And I think um, his, these pieces really reflect that time too. I also think as well, I've not read the book yet, uh, but I will do because it sounds fascinating. But just looking at some of the titles, I think he certainly has quite a prophetic look on the music industry as well. Would, 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 do you see that in some of the writings? Absolutely. When I was rereading a lot of these pieces, some of them were new to me, but I, had, I, I used to, you know, I pretty much tried to read them whenever I could. Yeah. And as I read them in sequence, it was absolutely like, you know, you know, Dave calls out, for example, that that rap becomes, you know, hip hop becomes much more important and much more central in popular music than rock. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he was he changed the name of his newsletter from rock and roll confidential to rock and rock and rap confidential in the 80s. Wow. So, you know, and also about where the business was going and the, the impact on artists and also politically. I'm sorry to say too, it's also prophetic about, you know, some of the um, changes that we started to see in the eighties that now we kind of, we kind of uh, live with, you know, yeah, and yeah. very, always very attentive to the, the, the meaning of race and the history of the music, what the music tells us about particularly race in America. Um, and, and that, you know, you you can't just being a fan of black music doesn't even even a passionate fan even an aficionado doesn't doesn't stand in for um, trying to tackle racism right I mean the, yeah. in that moving towards activism 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 I, I think you saw you see across these pieces too I um, I was at a music event the other night uh, called the Cat Club which Dan is a aware of and our listeners will become more aware of this uh, in the future but we had a guest on called Chaz Jankel who was uh, part of the Injury in the Blockheads he was actually co-writing okay. with the Injury and in the last 40 odd years he has evolved his music writing and creation he's been influenced a lot by world music but he talked a lot about the importance of black music soul music, funk music, jazz music and the importance of rhythm you know, if you look at the one um, constant in music, no matter what type of music or genre it is, it's rhythm. And a lot of the rhythm and the beats that we pick up now, whether you listen to house music, whether you listen to rock music, is through black music, you know, mm -hmm. whether it, it, it's from the 60s or the 50s or whatever. Yeah. And it was a fascinating talk. He, and this guy, Chaz Jankel, is 71, and mm. he played uh, a 2023 release. He put this music out. And I played it to my, my son the other day, and he said, who is this? This sounds really forward-thinking. And I showed the photograph of Chaz Jungle. He said, it's a 71-year-old guy who's nine years older than me. He's pro he is a granddad, and he's producing forward-thinking music like this, but it's all driven by his appreciation of world music and the history of beat and, and what, what dry cool. you know, rhythm. It was. It was fascinating. It was fascinating. That was but, a great um, band, Ian Dury and the Blackheads. Man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I learned so much about enduring the blockheads, and I, I'm probably like you and Dan. You know, you probably remember three or four songs, and right. you know, he had quite a sad life because he was disabled with polio, and he got himself into quite a lot of trouble. And he died early, and you know, it was quite sad. But, but when you listen to the backstory of everything again, you just this is why I loved doing these podcasts with Dan because you get so many backstories to music, yeah. you know, whether it's Bruce's music and, you know, we've heard so many great stories from our guests, but, um, you know, on the rhythm point, um, there's a, in, in this new book, kick out to jams. I mentioned that Dave writes a piece about the opening of the Seeger sessions tour at the new Orleans jazz and heritage festival. Right. And one of the things he notes is that, um, you know, 
that that band had a very different sense of rhythm and polyrhythms were were forward with mm-hmm. Larry Eagle on drums and how different that music felt rhythmically yeah. to to the more straightforward rock beat that that the E Street Band is is known for. Yeah. Um, it's a great piece too. Around I was at that show. It's one of my favorite Bruce shows I've ever seen oh, wow. because it was very emotional, mm-hmm. um, but also like. I almost was when I went down to Jazz Fest. I was thinking, I'm not sure if I need to see Bruce at Jazz Fest. Like, I don't go to Jazz Fest to see Bruce Springsteen. I go to Bruce Springsteen things that, and you know, I want to go hear a bunch of New Orleans music and gospel music. Um, but of course, I went. Like, of course, I attended that. <laughs> um, but I, I don't like that. Was a show where I felt like he had something to prove, and. I haven't seen that too often, right? Because of when I, right? If you if you saw Bruce by 80, 81, you know, he was already, he had already kind of made it to some degree. Um, mm-hmm. And that show, like that set, those songs, like what the heck is he doing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he just got that crowd who wasn't necessarily a Bruce crowd. Um, sure. But that's a really for Bruce fans that piece in the new in the new volume kick out the jams is is really worth a great read um, yeah. about that that day and that show. Roll down the window and let the wind blow back your hair. You're listening to the E Street Cafe podcast. Well, I, I think that's probably a very appropriate time just to kind of mention the book in terms of it, it's out now obviously um it's been out a couple of months i think lauren your your intro is uh, called blood in your mouth the writing of dave marsh by lauren onkey um and then obviously following that we've got a series of wow dozens of essays writings from dave going 2017 right back to 1984 so this is the second series isn't it because it's the second mm-hmm. book really along this theme but um, just listening to you talk now, I just feel inclined to go on Amazon straight away and order it because um, it's whetted my appetite. And I'm on holiday in about a week's time, so I need a new book to read anyway. So there you go. solution. <laughs> really, it's, it's a great read, you know. Um, it, Dave can write. That's the mm. thing. Like, it's got great openers and, and just like, right. Just like in the born to run book. And when he would describe a show, you felt like you were almost at the show. So, um, but, you know, and there's also like, there's a incredible piece in there, uh, um, written after Kurt Cobain committed suicide. And he dedicated the whole issue of his newsletter to that event. And he uses it to reflect on kind of, the history of rock and roll on, you know, what on, on Cobain and all of that, like there's just some pieces that really are worthwhile as we kind of understand the, the time of this music. And Jeff, we were talking about the title, um, you know, Dave, Dave's a Detroiter. He's a Detroit man. There you go. There you go. He loves the MC five. And there's an incredible, a long piece in here on Wayne Kramer from the MC five. Yeah. Um, That's really a great profile, but, you know, Dave wrote about the MC5 um, very early in his career when he was at Cream. I was on the, when I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I was on the nominating committee for my time when I was there. And Dave was on the nominating committee too. And the MC5 are still not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, you know, uh, he tried He tried his best. <laughs> they, they made the ballot many times. Um, but that song, Kick Out the Jams from the MC5, is so loud and powerful, and it's it's very Dave. In that well, I, I'm, I'm going to put this out here now because I, I, I mentioned to you off air that uh, I saw a clip of the MC5 performing Kick Out the Jams from 69, I think it was. It was a festival. It's a famous clip. Go and see it on YouTube. Uh, two Two links, first of all. Um, maybe the book, Dave's book, should have been "Kick Out the Jams" in brackets, motherfuckers. Yeah, because that, <laughs> that's what comes across. And he certainly would have preferred it that way. Oh, well, absolutely. Well, maybe some stars or, or asterisks would have would have done the trick. MC Five. Just, I've I've got the album, but that track on YouTube is absolutely electric. And I I still say to this day, that's pre-punk. That that's the first punk band oh, yeah. I, I I ever saw uh, yeah. then. You know, forget all the seventy-five stuff going on in New York. Oh. This this was in sixty-nine. Incredible, yeah. yeah. And it's like not metal, 
And, you know, it's, it's, and Dave, uh, the, the Wayne Kramer piece in the new book is terrific on the MC five, but in his mm. first collection, fortunate son, um, which came out in 85 has some of his earliest writing on, on, um, the MC five, which is great. Mm. Um, and that's a fun book too. That collects the 78 profile of Bruce from, um, Rolling Stone that I mentioned before, as well as that 1973 piece on Bruce and, and yeah. Bob Marley. You've seen Bruce on this tour? I have. I saw yep. the opener. I saw the opener in Tampa. Okay. And then I saw him a few weeks later here in Washington, DC. Tampa was, was wonderful. It was emotional, right. To be back and to see him again after so long. Tampa was also when we had a few more letter to you songs and he also did um, another song from the soul album. He did don't play that song for me. You lied. Mm. And he did, um, he did burn, he did burn and train. He did um, house of a thousand guitars. So Tampa was a very different beast than what the, the tour became. I'm pretty singed by the ticket thing here in the U.S. Yeah. Um, that was really disappointing. Um, so I'm, uh, um, and then I, I, I mean, I the static set list thing that's emerged, I know, has disappointed people. It doesn't bug me too much. I mean, you know, the first part of the Rising tour was the same set list, the Tunnel of Love tour, but I miss him talking to us. I think. Yes. Mm, that, yeah. that feels really different and yeah. it's an a, it's an apolitical show which surprised me mm. and i don't mean like go vote for anybody yeah yeah yeah, yeah. But given what we've all been through with the coronavirus and so many loss of lives and you know the politics here and an attempted coup on the government like i i didn't expect to not hear anything from him and so i'm a little mm. i'm a little feeling a little distant i love the big band i love the horns i love the, the vocalists um but i'm not going to as many shows as i normally do and maybe that's well i, th- I think we're the same you know yeah. I, i've seen two shows in gothenburg and and that is it period full stop you know i, I won't go to any more um i'm interested to see what 2024 brings because we know yeah. now he, he definitely is going to be touring in 2024 by the looks of it mm-hmm. it seems like it's going to be a rinse and repeat yeah. Yeah. thing again you know with uh, the us early 24 europe summer 24 and then fill in after that i don't know but it'd be interesting to see what happens i can't see him doing the same uh, cookie cutter type show i think something different will evolve next year don't you yeah i hope so i wonder if he's i mean he's certainly still a very vital live performer and all of that i wonder if he's out of ideas for the e street format like i wonder if the the, the mm. future the, the next exciting or or creative kind of live moment we might see might be something more solo or something with a smaller band or a different thing um yeah yeah well, I, I can't, I, yeah davy's anxious reckons he's touring with him next year but i think because he said that he's probably going to get uh pulled off that project i think <laughs> right about right that right like whenever you see somebody who's worked with bruce do something yeah. like that it's like that's the end of that oh. yeah yeah we, we've talked we talked about that with ken rosen um and yeah it, it's quite funny yeah but never mind so let's hope 2024 does bring something different Indeed. and it still whets our appetite no matter what it will be but uh yeah and i'm you know i love hearing uh um the, the couple of letter to you songs and i think night shift has worked really well i was kind of a critic of the soul album for something i wrote for backstreets but i think night night shift has been really lovely um now just to show you that the new staff are on it wheatney willie has hung around he's clearing up ah, and he's brought he's brought you yet another beer so oh, I, i'm gonna have so, a good afternoon here well a, a bit of dutch courage for the e street shuffle no doubt so uh, as as you <laughs> pop open that third beer lauren Um, Shall we play the E Street Shuffle? Let's play. Let's play the E Street Shuffle. Right, this could be loose, couldn't it? (laughs) Okay, so um, let's shuffle the cards. Um, Oh, here's here's one we've... I don't think we've done this one before. It's it's never come out of the the random generator. Um, Have you ever seen anything funny happen on Zoom or anything you shouldn't have seen on Zoom? Oh, not that. I mean, I did interview Bruce on Zoom, but that I was not it. embarrassing. Or oh, that no. was about two years ago, wasn't it? 
Yeah, um, we had a, uh, I was part of a group, including the editors of Kick Out the Jams, Danny and and Daniel, who put together a conference celebrating uh, Dave's work in 2021. It was an online conference. And yeah. I interviewed Bruce and Nona Hendricks of LaBelle yeah. together, yeah, yeah, which is on YouTube. And I got to talk about Sun City. Um, which they were both on and got to talk about, I sold my heart to the junk man. Yeah. Um, which of course, you know, um, Patty LaBelle and the bluebells recorded that song. That's in fact where I started the interview. What do all of us have in common? I sold my heart to the junk man because (laughs) like Nona Hendricks, Bruce Springsteen by us, I meant me and Dave Marsh, which is, I sold my heart to the junk man. And it seemed to loosen Bruce up. Like he seemed to enjoy talking, talking about that. Yeah. Um, So that was fun, but it wasn't embarrassing. So. And and it's out on YouTube. Everybody wants to go and see it. It's uh, in fact, this morning uh, in preparation for this podcast, I watched about the first 20, 25 minutes of that with my coffee on the patio. And uh, yeah, Bruce was very engaging. You're you're right. It was from his studio, wasn't it? And uh, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, next question. What is your favorite holiday or vacation destination? Mm. I really love uh, the town of Dingle uh, on the Dingle Peninsula in Ireland. Yeah. All right. Um, home of the famous dolphin, Fungi. Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love the west coast of Ireland. It, it's oh. a be- beautiful place. But yeah, great answer. Great answer. Um, okay, this just comes up every single time. You know what's coming next. The gig time machine. If you could turn the dial and go back to a gig of your choice that you've been to, to relive, or to a gig that you wish you were at. Mm. Do, do I suspect it's going to be Darkness Tour 78 because of what you talked about? Yeah, maybe the Cleveland Agora in oh. uh, of the Darkness Tour in 78. When I lived in Cleveland, when I worked at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it seemed like it seemed like half the city had been to yeah. that gig. Right, like everybody claimed to be there, um, but that that really sounded like an. Inc- I mean, all those radio broadcasts that summer, but that show oh, just seemed yeah. to be so special. And Cleveland was was did play a real role for Bruce. So, on a hot summer night, early August, um, I just imagine that place was absolutely electric and steaming, no doubt. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, again, it probably sound like I'm spending half my life on YouTube, but I, I saw a clip which Ken Rosen put out through his regular updates, uh, Kingdom of Days, and he put a link onto Southside playing the Agora. I think it was two weeks, two or three weeks after that, with South, uh, Southside and Bruce, Miami Steve, Clarence, and the quality from that small gig in that year, I think, is special. It's 22 minutes long, four it's songs. Great. It's great. It. And that Bruce, Bruce and Steve came over after they had played an arena show. Cause I mean, he was big enough in Cleveland in 78 that he played the, played the Richfield Coliseum yep. and he went, um, they went from that gig over to the club, the Agora. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. A um, couple more. Uh, Who do you text or message the most? Hmm. One of the people I text with the most is my friend, Pat, who I have been to many, 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 many Bruce shows with. And she um, she saw him in 78 at Madison Square Garden. So uh, I, I think we have seen probably like 40 shows together. So Yeah. yeah right. Brilliant. Brilliant. In fact, uh, if she live in Florida, I might be tempted today to say, let's jump in the car and drive up to Giant Stadium and see if we can see the show tonight. Yep. Last one of three, isn't it? Yeah, we're just giving away the day of recording, but hey, it doesn't matter. We'll, yeah. we'll be pulling this out in a couple of weeks anyway, so no problem. Um, and your last one, favorite decade. Oh, favorite decade. Well, you know, I just turned 60, so I'm pretty happy with this decade because I made it. Um, <laughs> uh, but musically, probably the 70s. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Both the rock, the soul music. Um the funk music going on it's it's just it's just amazing and because because you're a teenager in those and this is when we started right. to discover music whether yep. it's through the power of radio or through live shows or vinyl records that tends to be when our musical taste starts to form initially isn't it yeah and i really love that moment where kind of rock and r&b are really kind of integrated. I mean, I think we resegregate again in, in the later half of the seventies, but you know, bands like 
Earth, Wind, and Fire, and the Commodores, and the Isley Brothers are just are doing you know such great hybrids of of rock and soul music. It's one of the things I love about Bruce coming along in that period, and it's one of the things I love about the big band. I mean, I'm I'm excited that he's out with horns and singers. I think it's the oh, best yeah. version of Bruce for me. Yeah. yeah, as Dan calls it, the E Street Orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just liking it. Oh, Lauren, this has been an absolute joy. Um, word, word got out that you were going to be an entertaining and very interesting guest, and you did not let us down. Thank you very much. It's been a, a pleasure for joining us in the cafe on this Sunday. Um, I'd also like to thank Dan, my good friend, for, again, you probably just think you listen to these and it, it sounds like it runs seamlessly, but without... Dan's research, his organisation. I'm kind of the guy who puts all the editing together and, and gets things started. And Dan is the, the glue behind this podcast. So, Dan, I must take my hat off to you and say thank you very much. I couldn't do this without you, my friend. And um, a final shout-out for the book. Um, it's a Dave Marsh book, but it's a, a series of essays and writings. Um, Lauren Unke has done the introduction. And uh, I know I'm going to get on time within the next 24 hours and order it. It's called Kick Out the Jams, and it's available now from all good, average, and bad bookshops. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> please uh, dig in and help yourselves. And, and once again, Lauren, thank you very much. And um, hopefully you you can sleep off those three beers a, a little bit. This yeah, afternoon. there you go. Well, thank you both so much. It's really been an, uh, super fun to be on and talk with you. And I just love what you all do and keep it going. It's, it's really great for us uh, fans in the community. And I hope we can meet in person at a show down the road. That will happen, I'm sure, Lauren. Thank Amen. you. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to hit that follow button. This podcast was brought to you by Geezers in Glasses Productions.